Hello everyone, this is Sartaj Anand, the founder of Egomonk, and welcome to Business Beyond 2030, the show where we explore the socio-economic and technological revolutions shaping our world, and the role of business in realizing the future. Business has the transformative ability to move all of us from today to tomorrow with a shared purpose. And I have the privilege to unpack complexity with the world's smartest and most compassionate business leaders and decision makers as they deliver on their promise of abundance. This time around, we have Ravi Machani on the show. He is the managing director of the Machani Group, an 80-year-old family business run by the third generation of entrepreneurs. Ravi is a socially responsible business leader, an avid music enthusiast, and a forward-thinking visionary who ardently follows his passion in engineering, technology, and design. His stints working outside the family business have helped him gather expertise in many areas, including corporate finance, global M&A, turnaround management, operations, and strategy. Ravi believes business has the power to do tremendous good and serves on the board of Entrepreneurs' Organization, a global network of more than 13,000 business owners across 46 countries. First of all, Ravi, thanks so much for making time out and, and being on the show. My pleasure. You're part of the Machani Group, and that's an eight-year-old family uh, business group. It's run by the third generation of entrepreneurs. I think a lot of people would be interested to know what's the secret behind cultivating uh, such a long-standing entrepreneurial mindset. Hey, thank you, Sajah, for having me here. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to share what I've learned in the family business and outside. So the first question was, What's the secret behind cultivating an entrepreneurial mindset in a family business? My personal take is I would like to break them into two separate silos first, and then we'll see how to mix them. Yeah. So the first one about entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is a mindset that either you get it within yourself or influenced by outside. You're taking on the odds. Um, Most of the times it's a 90% chance that you will fail. So there are very few people in the world and statistics say it's about less than 5% of the people that take on these odds. It's a mindset that uh, is only driven by conviction, uh, illogical pursuit of a success that's defined by the entrepreneur. And that mindset is there in people uh, in 5% of the population in this world. So collecting such people in a family business is where the overlap really happens. Sometimes this entrepreneurial mindset is in the family. Sometimes you have to bring it from outside the family. Look at the statistics. There are only 330 million entrepreneurs out of the 7 billion population in the world. So that's less than 5%. So this 5% of the people, for somebody to expect to be born into the family, is a bit of an unfair expectation from the family. The family has a massive advantage that they grow in a family environment of entrepreneurs. So they're definitely stacked up against most of the people who probably don't grow up in this environment. So that advantage definitely a family business has. But the past success is absolutely no measure of what is possible in the future. Yeah, it's a lagging indicator. It's always a lagging indicator. This is like trying to drive a car looking at the rear view mirror. And it's not a possibility. The rear view mirror only can show you how far you've come or where you are, but not necessarily where you can go. So they're two very separate things. So how how are you sort of, you know, how's the next generation of the family approaching the business? Uh, are you seeing some patterns already emerge? So I'm seeing some really interesting patterns emerge. And I think the family businesses 
uh, till let's say 2020 to the family businesses till 2029 are completely different animals. The next decade, according to the research, shows that by 2029, for the first time, a machine will have more cognitive capacity than a human being. The challenges that we face obviously have never been faced before. So as a family business, we can do two things. We can prepare for the future or deny uh, on what's worked in the past. Yeah. So there are three aspects to any family business. One is stability, growth, and leadership. And there are three different minimum legs of a stool that you need for stability and future of any business. Let's talk about growth because that's where the future really is in question. Our past businesses have been successful for reasons that are really ingrained in the past. For us to be successful in the future, we really have to stare at the future, pick up what matters for the future and work on them proactively. There's a reactive working and a proactive working. Kodak was the first company in the world that invented the digital camera, and that's now history. Yeah? Uh, while that's a bad example, there are plenty of good examples too. So family businesses, like for example, our own manufacturing of springs, is a legacy business that will turn 60 years old next February in 2020. While it's an incredible milestone, most businesses, including automotive business, is staring at a massive disruption because most industries disrupt themselves after 80 years or so. And it's happened across the world. And the pace of that disruption is happening at an alarming rate. What took 80 years in the past is now taking maybe 20 or 40. And the electric vehicle is here to stay. It's coming. Uh, it's a question of when. So how we adopt the future is really a, a challenge that one family business has to answer. So you, you mentioned the three legs of that stool, stability, growth. I think family businesses have that core strength of longevity. Uh, they stay around much longer typically than a typical corporate or a, or a startup. But as a custodian of the group, how are you thinking about enhancing that longevity? So every business has its uh, feast and famine cycles. And we also stare at disruption. The difference between innovation and disruption is innovation is doing something better marginally better, sometimes a little bit much better. Disruption is something that you do once in a while that you completely make the past irrelevant. Cannibalize. You just, yeah, I mean, there's no other choice. You have to cannibalize. So um, when you're looking at a family business, we have no choice but to invest in growth. And growth can come from new economies and also the next new economies. Growth can come from economies in the future, if you invest and prepare for it and meet when the time is right to really put in bigger chips and actually monetize the opportunity. So it's really important for family businesses to prepare for a time before it can be monetized. And that it is growth, new economy. Family businesses have the stability from the past, but there's no insurance or a guarantee that you'll have the same stability going forward. So within that stability... As a rule of thumb in our family business, we invest a portion of what we earned last year for the future. This is a discipline that every family business or any business has to have. It is very easy to cut the monies that we need for the future uh, to enjoy the maximum profits today. Um, all of us uh, you know, uh, eat today 
and uh, bear the brunts of it um, in the next six months. What we eat today yeah. kind of determines where we're going to be in three months. So it's one of those things. So we have to choose how much to eat today to be able to be fine today and for the future. It's the balance that's required. So you have to have to invest for growth. This is one of the biggest mistakes, not just family businesses, most businesses make. Growth is an absolute necessary ingredient for stability of any business. Yeah, it's a classic asset allocation problem. So I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, what's the thumb rule that you guys follow? Is it 75, 25, 90, 10? What, what sort of makes sense? And how does it vary? So for me, uh, every business goes through its feast cycles and famine cycles. In the feast cycles is when you chance upon upsides that you normally don't uh, in most cycles. And that's when you tuck away 20 to 30% of your uh, fee cycle money for growth. And growth, you know, is like any startup. You have a runway. You tuck it away towards that growth. And that runway is what gives you the chance to prepare for a chance to monetize, be opportunistic when the time is right to switch it on. You mentioned electric vehicles, self-driving, AI voice assistants. You know, the fourth industrial revolution is fully sort of playing out, not just in India, but all over the world. As a family business, how do you sort of try to participate? Because they're viewed as legacy businesses, slow-moving sort of monolithic creatures. So how do you attach yourself to this new economy? So let's look at the, um, the IC engines and electric vehicles. And let's look at it dispassionately and take a view from the forest and then come to the trees. The electric vehicle moves bodies. So does the IC engine. IC engine has 2,000 odd parts. It's an engineering marvel. Electric vehicle probably has 60 parts. They both move people, but they're completely different uh, core products. One is a product that people like to buy. Uh, the mobility future business is more of a service that people are going to use. Um, And for a manufacturing company that is making auto components, it's easier to adapt itself into a furniture industry than it is to the electric vehicle. The good comparison would be a Swiss watch to an Apple watch. They both tell time, but they're two different animals, fundamentally different products. There's an illusion that it's a watch, but Apple is more a computer telling you time. It's the same way the electric vehicle is really a computer on wheels that is happening to move people. The same battery stack in an electric vehicle can be plugged into your home and it can just as easily charge your home requirements for electricity. In fact, that's the future plans for the batteries that come out of degenerated cars can be repurposed for a home or maybe even your lawnmower. So these battery stacks that can be modular, reusable, stackable is the future. So, I mean, long and short of it is, the truth is, it's easier for an auto component company to morph into a furniture company than it is to be in automotive business of the future because it's really a completely different field. And there's no business in the world that's not going to be touched by computers, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and all these things. These are trains that are going to come and hit you whether you're ready or not and that's the real question that we are trying to grapple with and as a family business we have decided to diversify into defense so I'm happy to share that my elder brother has managed to pull off an incredible uh, success for the family business where we have now 
the top five licenses in the country to manufacture assault rifles to protect the country and also ammunition. So we've now moved to defense because it has a lot of engineering, machining, metallurgy, product development that we have our core competencies in on. And we divorced ourselves from the fact that we have been in the automotive industry for last eight years and dispassionately, logically and loyally trying to keep the 2,000 people that work for us employed. So we have to shift into defense, an industry which we were in the past not really entertained, but today very proactively being opportunistic to manufacture goods for defense. So sometimes it's about a choice to not for a Swiss watch to try to be an Apple watch. They have no choice but to cling on to be the Swiss watches and be the niche player or just give up entirely and from Swiss watches probably move into jewelry. That would be a good analogy. Yeah, so you're talking about essentially lateral growth based on capacities that you anyway have invested in for decades. So there's a big question that I think family businesses tend to grapple with, which is that invest versus operate versus build mindset. And we've noticed that high net worth families often uh, deploy capital via a family office or a venture fund to try to generate those significant IRRs. How is the family beyond diversification sort of going unicorn hunting? So I heard three questions there, but let me see if I can remember all three and answer them in the right order. I'll speak for my family. I've seen families and entrepreneurs with two mindsets. There are people that roll up their sleeves, jump into the trenches if required, operate, build businesses. Then there are families and entrepreneurs after they've had the first success or a few successes, no longer want to roll up their sleeves, want to bet on people who are in the trenches building businesses. We come from the first category. Our family DNA has always been proactive entrepreneurship, work with entrepreneurs, but build it from the ground up. That's what's worked for us. And in these areas, the IRRs are far superior and they're also more stable, more safe, less risk averse also if you're able to roll up your sleeves. You know, I heard something really interesting yesterday when one of the founders of uh, Skype made a comment saying that on a spreadsheet, it is so easy to add customers. Yeah. Right? Uh, revenues is a function of number of customers. Um, sales Keep them. Probably, yeah, it's just such an easy uh, task. But in reality, outside the spreadsheet, it's a you know, it's a, it's a jungle out there. The second question was, yeah. So how do you sort of go unicorn hunting? How do you sort of uh, partake in that sort of idle capital that sometimes exists? So uh, I think it's a very specialized industry. And the best in the world that I have seen haven't figured out how to spot the unicorns. And look at all the ducks that need to be in a row to get a unicorn going. First of all, you need to have an idea that has the potential to end up as a billion. Right? That itself is far and few between. And all the empirical data in the world shows that, yeah, there are probably 1% or 2% of the companies that can be unicorn. Second, the entrepreneur behind the idea. Third, the market behind the uh, idea. Uh, fourth, the team behind the idea. The fifth, the economy. I mean, the number of ducks that need to be in a row, this is a tall ask for any unicorn hunting. I don't care, AI-powered, the smartest human beings in the world chasing an unicorn. According to me, there's more chance than uh, analytics or logic that can spot it. What you can do is spot a few businesses that can't be unicorns. But what's wrong with them? 
at the end of the day, if the question was, if you ask me, I personally love to have a hundred ten million dollar businesses versus uh, one billion one firm. There's always a danger in. Uh, you know, having one big unicorn and we all know uh, eggs spread in multiple baskets is a better place to be than to have one big unicorn. You know, uh, I'm so we as a family business don't chase unicorns. Uh, you know, you know, we may chase uh, smaller animals, sure. but, you know, they are more real yeah. than unicorn with their horns on their forehead. <laughs> yes, so that's, that's been our, uh, you know, philosophy. So we believe in fundamentals. Uh, we believe in building businesses. We believe in being entrepreneurs. Uh, we believe in proactively building businesses along with other entrepreneurs and we've done that plenty. I have good examples in the family business. So this is super interesting because this is like the inverse of the power law, right? The the Bay Area runs off of finding these unicorns because the, the capital dies everywhere else. You're like, I'd rather have 100 good businesses, stable returns and keep growing from there. Absolutely. And let's look at uh, reality here. Uh, one of our good friends is Aprameya, who founded Taxi for Sure. Yeah. Very pleasantly was surprised to hear that he started Taxi for Sure four to five months before Uber. Look at where Taxi for Sure could go and where Uber went. And they're two completely different uh, paths. And uh, who in Silicon Valley or who in Axel Partners in India uh, can play a role in this? It's too hard to tell. You know, is it the entrepreneur? Is it the idea? Is it the ducks that fall in a row? Is it the team? Is it the market conditions? Who knows what plays out? It's way too complicated. Yeah, it's a combinatorial issue and you can't predict everything. You can't predict anything. And I think Silicon Valley should do what it's good at and India should what we should do what is good for India. We're the largest democracy in the world. You know, uh, it may not be the ideal place to pursue what's in Silicon Valley's strength. Silicon Valley has its strengths. It has the capital, uh, intellectual capital that it has. It's just not true that we have this. You know, if I really want to be creative here, if you could bring an Israel into uh, uh, Bangalore, now that's an interesting model. That, I think, is a better chance for us. So you mentioned this, that when you have this builder uh, mindset inside the sort of group, and I, I am aware that you have some experimental startups uh, uh, under the wings. Uh, is that the same rationale to invest in these sort of uh, more experimental businesses within the group and engendered those stable, strong IRRs? So I'll share a few things that we've done and I'll share the logic on how we also approach them. So we have a stable core business in real estate. So we built an adjacent business in ARVR capabilities to complement the core business. The number, number one advantage an ARVR company has being attached to a real estate firm is the fact that it has access to cutting-edge domain knowledge, has access to meeting rubber with, you know, where rubber meets the road. So it can product develop better than a bunch of IITNs trying to build a product for a real estate firm. Yeah. So that's an advantage. And I bring up a very unique advantage that very few people know about it. It's called captive customers. Captive customer is somebody that's only handing you out an oxygen tank as and when you need it. Just when you need it. And after that, how much can you go explore is the question. But the captive customer can only hand out what is enough for you to go explore. 
After that, you need to go find these other tanks when you're exploring in an ocean so that you have a deeper dive, longer dive, and you need to build your craft, and that needs to drive on its own. So we found an entrepreneur, Murli, I'm happy to share, uh, to drive this business. Because every business, new business, needs an entrepreneur who gives its undivided attention. It's almost like parenting. Yeah. You know, you, you need uh, that undivided love and caring that it uh, takes to nurture a child. I completely agree with you. I I'm trying to also understand that you mentioned there is a, a few legacy businesses in the group. How have you sort of experimented with say on entrepreneurship right within these legacy businesses? Is there room for them to also grow um, you know better than average? Absolutely, you know, um the phase I'm which uh, in right now, I love to work with entrepreneurs. maybe uh, a little bit of over exposure to entrepreneurs uh, in general um, it's just the peer network that i spend most of my time with now and i'm constantly looking for entrepreneurs in my ecosystem and outside the ecosystem when i find a really interesting entrepreneur i give them an opportunity that can feed off the core business so we give them captive business and we give them a runway say 3 to 5 years and within which the entrepreneur has to find uh, you know um, their own destiny uh, like any other startup we need a time a runway uh, amount and uh, a team so the ability for the entrepreneur to leverage the runway time and the money to build a viable business is what really at stake my golden rules are i give 2 years time in that 2 years time i can take care of payroll for a company that can grow at 30 to 42% in a year on year that's it and the entrepreneur has to find customers to take it from there it's like you're almost giving a foundation layer enough for survival but the entrepreneur has to really find the other oxygen tanks for them to build the business on you yeah. can't lay out everything to an entrepreneur yeah, yeah. it doesn't work you have to go beyond the spreadsheet absolutely <laughs> beyond the spreadsheet so just sort of uh, zooming out a little bit uh, and and focusing on on you if you were 18 today and and you were inheriting this rich uh, heritage of entrepreneurship and the family business itself what's the one thing you would try to learn so if i were 18 i would ask one really interesting question that probably should be part of every uh, school curriculum there are a lot of changes future that stare at us and the question is can i imagine a future without this example robotics example cognitive entities these are computers that can start to think like humans they probably never be like humans i don't know i won't probably be around to see that but they can definitely mock a human being so if the answer is no i cannot imagine a future without them then this is definitely going to happen so this is what we are doing in our family business i'm happy to share that we are working on robotics i'm happy to share that we are working on artificial intelligence this i think is a necessary ingredient for a family business to be in the future the world is getting faster businesses are getting built much faster they are dying even faster i think leveraging the new economies and the next new economies is an essential ingredient not a luxury anymore and for me a new economy would be something like e-commerce let's face it e-commerce is going faster digital marketing is beating offline marketing but that doesn't mean that you can build a future just on the new economy you have to build a future on the next new economy too what's coming your way that's not apparent today and the ability to see around the corners is a craft 
it takes time it takes mentorship from people that can read uh, and focus what about around the corner and surrounding yourself around with people like them you know is what uh, really makes the difference so you touched on the next uh, sort of question i had which is if you were 18 today what's that one business opportunity you'd like to work on so at 46 i'm working on robotics that's that one business that i would pick today for multiple reasons the first big reason is it's it's extremely challenging robots today are still a laughing stock but not for too long uh, robotics is a multidisciplinary engineering physics chemistry computers yeah everything everything thrown in i mean everything thrown in you don't have a bigger blender product out there i mean long and short of it you're trying to make humans you're trying to make superhumans you're trying to make objects that are not humans and all of these are robots uh can we imagine a future without robots absolutely no are we there yet absolutely no are we going to be there absolutely yes and uh, for me robotics is that one pick that i'll pick because it has all the elements uh, of the future artificial intelligence security IoT, ethics yeah. iot i mean you can think of anything it is all going to be in one big blender in this one milkshake i think now just going into back to the family so i've noticed that family businesses because of the dynamics at play can get quite complex over time and, and as the generations move on how do you approach serious topics within the family such as income splitting or succession planning because that those are sometimes uh, thorny issues So I think uh, family businesses around the world are quite badly misunderstood. And I say this openly because research shows that 80% of the businesses in the US are family businesses. Yet there is a perception that it is the other 20% that's dominating the economic landscape. It's the first point. Secondly, what will shock you is less than 1% of the books are written for family businesses. uh beat leadership in a family business is completely different than leadership in a non family business and the definition of a family business is if you start a business sataj and you have the intention to pass it on to the next generation it's a family business so given all these uh things in the past the family businesses of the future have to rely on what's worked for other family businesses in the past and build from there and add the relevant pieces IMD Switzerland has done the best research in the world. They have researched the 25 ingredients that it takes for a family business to be successful. And they have researched 100-year-old family firms. So they are not only testing businesses uh, that have been successful financially, but they are really testing them for longevity. Yeah. So 100-year-old family businesses, and let's say you study a couple of hundred of these, that will give you enough base research work to base your future on so that's what we've done in our family business and in a family business there's a big perception that needs to be addressed having differences is extremely healthy having disputes is extremely unhealthy so in the two words family and business what is more important i can tell you family is more important if there's no family there is absolutely no business so we also address the needs of the family as much as we address the needs of the business For example, personally, I may have all the interest in the world to pursue robotics and the risk appetite too. If my sister or my brother don't want to pursue robotics and it's not part of their end all whatever that is, it's really unfair for me to force them. 
So we're talking and addressing this issue called independence. So autonomy and independence within the family business is equally important. And a family business is really three layers of businesses juxtaposed on each other and has to supposed to perform as one entity. And it's not always easy. Running a family business, according to me, is three times harder than a pure play pursuit of financial goals business. You've already mentioned that you have this uh, sort of builder mindset. But what do you think about that model where uh, there are family businesses that at some point just want to be owners, not operators? They sort of introduce professional managers and, and they go that route. I know it works for some families, it doesn't for others. Where do you stand on that? My personal opinion is every generation should have operation. I've learned a few things from my grandfather. He's saying there's a time in your life when you keep your hands in your pocket. Now, before you put your hands in your pocket and walk around in the office, you need to have your rolls, you know, hands, uh, sleeves rolled up and be on the ground. Irrespective of whether family or non-family business, every human being should have a damn good grasp on operations before he can work on business. And this is across all the businesses around the world. Operational experience is what teaches you that customers cannot be multiplied on a spreadsheet. If you're the fanciest educated person from, let's say, Wharton, you might be a wizard in spreadsheet. But if you're unable to handle the vagaries of people, the challenges on the ground, the illogical challenges that can bring you down and have what it takes to hold on, you'll never be able to build a business. In my personal experience, for our next generation, we are going to mandate that people handle operations before they sit on top and board the decisions, if you mean. So what gives a person to sit on a board and give you executive decisions on the board? Unless you've climbed down from operations, in my personal opinion, nobody has a right to give uh, board opinions. That's a big mistake, according to me. Because a family business is just not about money. If it's just about money, then it's okay. That's a good stand to take. You will never be able to build next generation businesses with the pure mindset of just investing. You're just being a family bank. If that's the end goal, then it's a perfect vision to have. For our family business, financial currency is just one of the things that we pursue. We're not trying to just be a family bank and keep you know healthy generations going. We are looking for generations that actively build value beyond financial currency for the community at large. It's the impact currency that matters. It's the relationship currency that matters. It is a relationship across the globe that matters. There are so many other things that we pursue that matter to us. The reputation currency. And all these things only come through operations, not just financial investing. Yeah, You have to be out there. Yeah, banks don't have that level of uh, commitment or respect. Absolutely not. So you had mentioned this earlier that the Machani Group has 2,000 plus sort of employees on its roles. Do you believe family businesses treat their workforce differently compared to corporations, vanilla corporations that are just about maximizing ROI? I would like to answer this in a different way. I will share how the best run family businesses treat their employees. The 5% of the family businesses, the excellence uh, pursuing family businesses treat their core employees like family. I mean, what you and I know that there's a family that you're born into and then there's a family that you choose, starting from your wife 
uh, you know, children, could be your good friends. These are the family that you choose. How different is it at workplace? So every business has core employees who are really your family and employees that come for a salary. So it's important to distinguish the two. And it's really important to nurture this family by bond, not necessarily family by birth. So that is the absolute core ingredient that it takes to build a stable, solid family business. So you have to treat your core team, people that are related to you by bond, not necessarily by blood, as family. So in my personal journey, I have plenty of people who are family by bond, not by blood. So in this context, what's the culture that you think is powering the Machani group today? Number one is family culture. And what is a family? The non-negotiable ingredients are trust and respect. Respect differences. Avoid disputes, but not differences. Keeping it real. And let's face it, all of us, if I ask you, you have one week to live. What do you think you will do? Go chase your next customer or go chase your family. We all have these conflicts. So clearly, family first is the number one culture thing that we have. We have three things that we uh, put out in a culture document. Work smart, have fun, help each other out. All three are non-negotiables for a family business. You know, working smart always yields far better results than working hard. That's an illusion out there. Between you and I, 80% of what we are is because of only the 20% of the things that we've done in our life. That's why it's important, counterintuitive, that working smart is far better uh, a choice than working hard. And we give plenty of time for a lot of fun. You know, I said works, work smart, have fun. We have a couple of bands in the office. We have as much fun in the office as we work. And it's equally important. You know, at the end of the day, a family business is like going to a home. That's why if you come to our office, it's an anti-office. It's a home where we come and work. So, you know, fun is equally important too. And the third thing that's part of a family culture is helping each other out. It's a non-negotiable ingredient in a family business. Uh, you know, may not be required in most uh, other forms of businesses, but in a family business, you will and have to help each other out. That's what family makes a family. Otherwise, these are just a bunch of people put together who are just trying to make money together. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and also the good thing is that it's uh, the culture values are super simple to understand. Oftentimes... When you go to a corporate, uh, the long list of values sort of obfuscate uh, what the actual value is. So family businesses tend to be more reflective, I would say, and inward looking, um, in my experience. Do you think there needs to be more knowledge sharing uh, among this group? Or how does it, how is it, how does it happen right now? So I've seen pockets of excellence in family businesses. I've seen amazingly professionally run family businesses in Europe. I've seen a few really well-run businesses in the U.S. And I don't have a whole lot to say about businesses from the rest of the world. They are very financially successful, but they're not really good at, I think, learning the best practices from each other, nor are we the best at networking. If you ask me, where are the Machani Group families around the world? They're hard to come by. You know, there are a few families in Japan, there are a bunch in America, there are a few in Europe. We could do a much better job of families networking as families rather than individuals going and networking with other individuals. Because if you think about it, a really good analogy would be, 
you take a uh, a for profit company that's not a family business let's just call it a non family business a non family business is like a 100 meters dash or a marathon somebody is trying to make the quickest buck is after a 100 meter dash somebody who wants a marathon is preparing for a marathon in the two different animals completely different training a family business is a relay race of marathons right you run for 42 years and you pass on the baton to the next generation so the dna is a completely different and so the way we prepare is completely different and there's a good research material out there for all of us to leverage and as one of the big messages that i want to carry that family businesses are extremely powerful if they operate in the excellence layer the moment they slip from the excellence layer they are obviously plagued by the challenges i'll say of family businesses and a lot of time these are tensions that will pull you in opposite directions that does not mean it's bad again going back to the original comment about healthy differences versus disputes differences are super necessary for all businesses to thrive disputes are not do you think there's an opportunity for the machani group to bring together family businesses in the region at least it's definitely one of my life pursuits my dream is to build a network like ypo and eo for family businesses because our core dna is very different um the way we take decisions is you know usually for decades you know i'm not worried about the next quarter yeah. fortunately we're not in a you know uh, right I, mean, i would say a fashion show <laughs> it doesn't matter how good we look today it's really important that we uh, stay and look good long term so yeah the dream is there um i am uh, spending some time with imd switzerland who's got really good research i'm spending some time with howard they've also done some good work on family businesses and according to me this is a night and day difference to a family business just the awareness of all the typical challenges that a family business faces is a first step and uh, education for a family business is a few layers above just running a business you're just pursuing money in a business in a family business you're pursuing legacy you're pursuing family by bond you're pursuing growth along with stability you're pursuing a whole lot of other things yeah. multidimensional currencies which is a lot harder to do then for a pure profit company because that's, that's just one metric there it's just one metric my grandfather knows how many people we employ i think we could probably help with that convening so i i look forward to that you had mentioned this earlier that you know you recently diversified uh, from real estate into defense there are so many multi billion dollar opportunities out there so how do you approach diversification is there a a mental model that sort of stitches or connects everything i would say every organization has a center and the center is like a rubber band you can stretch it only so much if you stretch it it'll come back beyond a point if you stretch it'll snap so i'll talk about our manufacturing industry and then i'll talk about the non manufacturing business and why we have pursued what we pursued our manufacturing business the core strength is metallurgy engineering scale operations factories ability to manage labor long product development cycles and all the rest of the stuff it takes to go with the manufacturing capability and after a strategy session we understood and realized that we are closer to guns and ammunition 
then we are to the electric vehicle sure. going back to the analogy of Swiss watch to a, an apple watch they both tell time but they're different animals so that's why for the manufacturing business we built this new diversification in defense and the logic is as follows defense spend in the country domestically is going to rise according to me 800x right everybody's complaining about the challenges that we have in automotive business why isn't anybody looking at the opportunities in defense uh, the government for last four years and the next four years uh, they are not going to outsource anything that we can procure locally make in india has been written everywhere so defense is something they're going to make in india so why won't you make things in india with the same sense of strength that you have i think it's the ability to be true to your business to be loyal to your people not necessarily the industry bias that you have and uh, our goal is to keep our 2000 people and growing in manufacturing so that's why we've done what we've done you take a look at our real estate industry here's we had a very unique opportunity to diversify and we have a blank canvas so in real estate industry we could have diversified in making i don't know tiles and lights and a few other things but we took a very complementary approach in diversification to what we did in manufacturing and uh, in real estate we went very aggressive it was an offensive position versus a defensive position in manufacturing in manufacturing we're trying to protect jobs we're trying to protect our turf with 10 plants one plant in the us it's a very defensive position so that move is different in real estate it was a business that we built based on new cash flows that we can bring to the family and anyway the risks were high it's a new business new set of customers new set of vendors everything is new so when the risk is high when we diversify we might as well go with a high risk option yeah, you need more rewards also yeah yeah so that's why we went with uh, arvr and we built uh, we built zapi labs which is an arvr company uh, in the business of simulation and visualization for real estate industry and what we were able to build for real estate industry we have now gone and done it for healthcare we've done it for defense and a few other industries that we're looking at so that's how we diversified in uh, real estate we've gone very offensive high risk high growth because there's high risk high growth anyway in the new business that we plan to work on you had mentioned this as well that uh, family businesses think multidimensionally and an impact uh, currency and legacy is is an important consideration could you talk a little bit more about say your rural bpo impact sourcing effort in dvillage and also broadly how important it is for family businesses to build this legacy of good the last name is extremely powerful name in your full name a transfers uh, transgenerations so there's something special about it so the things that you need to do for legacy are completely different than things that you have to do for the short term so it's the balance every successful family business that's lasted over 100 years has a foundation of a rock solid philanthropic initiative every so it's not a luxury absolute necessity it is where the generation that is passing on the baton permanently the older generation let's say my father gets to onboard the next generation in this philanthropic activities to 
inject pride in the family business there are things money can buy and things money can't buy reputation unfortunately can't be bought you can be known but reputation can't be bought and i won't comment who's more reputable there's an automatic reaction when we talk about tatas and reliance right it is what it is and that is real so every family business has to have philanthropic uh, work because you have to pursue non financial currencies too that's when the real longevity and the next generation can be onboarded into the family business so a family business has three generations working at the same time you have the generation that is passing on moving on they are best suited to onboard the incoming generation the current operating generation are best at operating the current generation and preparing for the success of not the incoming generation but after that so there are certain best practices that work and philanthropy is a non-negotiable ingredient of uh, any family business so we set out india village really 9 years ago january 6th of 2020 will be our 10th year but it's just one philanthropic initiative in the family our uh, legacy philanthropic uh, initiative called mg brothers is now 60 years old wow. so uh, for a family business pursuing impact currency is a non negotiable it's a necessity not a luxury yeah because the broader environment uh, i think bloomberg was saying that in the next 10 years or so we'll have around 1.5 trillion dollars of uh, family wealth transferred across generations i think this philanthropic view is is super important because when you have rising inequity you have to do something to to pass on that legacy of good i think it's a moral obligation all of us carry i was fortunate enough to be at the un at the united nations the general assembly uh, got me an opportunity to uh, look at the 17 sustainability development goals the un is trying to get out there so 2030 is when they're trying to reach these sustainability goals and it should be part of everybody's dna family or non family because the world that we are facing is uh, facing challenges that is never faced in the last 20000 years we have done more damage to this planet in the last 30 years or 40 years than we probably have done in the last 30000 years or we never did anyway so um, nature is uh, a very uh, wise and self sustaining entity she will find a way to wipe us out i don't think we need to worry about the world we need to worry about ourselves if we are going to share this planet with mother earth we have a obligation to share it with her not really uh, you know plunder her it's not going to work we don't need to worry about human race i think uh, you know uh, as long as we are respectful to her so the world will find its way it'll heal itself it'll wipe out uh, human beings if we don't uh, care so i think now it's more of uh, a necessary awareness actions moral responsibilities all of these are very much required for us to be even part of this planet so ravi just thinking a little bit about exposure to startups is the family and an lp in any funds how does it want to sort of externally tap into private equity or other asset classes how do you approach that part how do you make others make money for you <laughs> so we're uh, uh quite set in this particular aspect of investing and it might change over time currently what we do is we invest in companies that add value to our core businesses so these are the adjacent businesses that come our way that add value to the core businesses or 
we invest in companies that have a long-term value to the family business in terms of playing a role in the new businesses or the next new businesses. E-commerce on, let's say, fine furniture from Bali to complement our real estate business would be the new economy. And robotics would be the next new economy. So as a family business, we've been investing in these adjacent businesses that add value to the core for a couple of reasons. Number one, we have captive customers in the core business that can nurture the adjacent businesses. So we are a family that believes in customer-funded businesses. We don't believe in accelerating any company way beyond a point where it cannot sustain its growth. Making money from customers is still the only way to be a profitable business. I'm not against the new way of borrowing private equity or anybody's money, but the moral obligation to pay back these investors exists. If the private equity makes money only by going an IPO and you just spread the dream and the from, risk. Yeah, and the risk from a bunch of Canadian pension fund to the people around the world, I still think you have the moral obligation to at some point make profits. There's no running away from this. So if the game is to only flip the companies and you make the money, then it's a great strategy. For us, it's not. We are only pursuing money after we have enough conviction that the customers will fund your business. And that's the only way to grow. Would the group ever consider listing, like being a public sort of uh, entity as well, That going that route? Yeah, definitely there are advantages in going IPO. Uh, we have considered taking our manufacturing business IPO in the past. And we want to go IPO for the right reasons. We just want to go out there for the wrong reasons. There are massive advantages in not going IPO too. Today, I'm not bothered about my next quarter performance. I'm bothered about how we do in the next five years. Why would I buy myself a guillotine above my uh, neck uh, if I don't need one? So, you know, there is no glory in building a public company. It's about building a company. Take families like BMW, take Cargill. These are huge companies. $280 billion, world's largest family business. They don't do IPO. I don't know if uh, an IPO is the only way to grow. And just moving back to the, the locus of the family, if, if, say, the next incoming generation of the family didn't want to be a, a part of the family business, how would you support them, encourage them? What options would they have to, you know, be attached and yet be independent? So for every family member, we believe in an empowerment and an entitlement. Every family member is entitled to wealth. A role in the family business is earned. That's empowerment. And you get empowered if you have a track record. For our family business, we have understood that 30 years of age is a good time to bring the next generation into the family business. So until 30 years of age, the family member is encouraged to be outside in the world and completely discouraged from being in the family business. This is the time any individual gets to calibrate where he stands in any ecosystem and how good they are in a workplace. 
and at that level is when the family person can be inducted into the family business. So it's a good way to gauge uh, where a family business member can come in. And second thing is like any other business, a family member gets to apply to be part of the family business and the family board decides if this person is going to play an active role in building the family business and they can accept or reject the role. So the process sounds really democratic or, or built around consensus uh, within your particular family business. Is that the norm uh, or is it more of a patriarchal structure that you think exists in other typically family businesses? I think a consensus-based decision is a healthy decision framework in a few cases. Um, for a family business, it is. It makes sense to leverage consensus-based decision-making for the family decisions. For the non-family business decisions, it needs to be as free and have the advantage of running like a business. And if you see empirically around the world, the best-run businesses usually have two entrepreneurs. Uh, there are very few rare cases of excellent businesses built by one entrepreneur. There are tons of two entrepreneur businesses and there are a few of three and more that those are rare so I'd say entrepreneurship is like parenting you can be a brilliant single parent but you're always going to be a brilliant single parent I think an ideal family is is two because in my personal journey I have found that if somebody is brilliant at the external world they're not so great at the internal world so a CEO is somebody that goes out in the world is a great torchbearer, a great poster child, a great person to face the outside world. They may be excellent at acquiring customers, excellent at you know banking relationships. They're not necessarily the best people to organize and nurture the inner team. Yeah. You get what I'm saying? So there are excellent CEOs and they're excellent COOs. And you need both for the good you business. You need absolutely both of them. Absolutely both of them. In fact, a COO role is un completely underplayed, kind of like the family business. You look at any economy in the world, and US economy, which is the most diverse non-family business, 80% of US economy is family businesses. And they run on these COOs who seem to be brilliant at internally nurturing what it takes to make a fabulous family business. So it's extremely important to get both of them right. Another question I had was about income splitting, because what happens is as the generations of entrepreneurs and generations of family members grow, there's an exponential sort of growth. And you mentioned that everyone, to some degree, is entitled to that wealth that the family has uh, accumulated. How does it operate? Like, there is a tremendous degree of opacity around this part. So what's the right way of approaching this uh, division of wealth or this uh, sharing of privilege? I would say there's a lack of understanding rather than opacity. It's actually extremely simple. I'm a family member actively running businesses in the family ecosystem. I get two streams of income. One is dividends as a shareholder. And I've inherited this. So that's the wealth that I'm entitled to. Now I have a second compensation, which is my salary and maybe even my performance bonus earned by being empowered. So I measure myself against any other CEO or other CXOs in the world. And it's no different. The opportunity cost for me being in the family business need not be a weakness or a strength. So there are two real big components. One is the entitlement, which is the wealth that you get as dividends that you're born in. 
it's a virtue of you know being born into the family you are entitled to that but the other piece has to be earned so we have very clear uh, demarcations in this and for the businesses that i run and if i outperform the industry and i do really well my family rewards me for it okay perfect completely agree with you well thanks so much ravi for for taking time out and appreciate you having this conversation with us yes such a wonderful morning it's been thank you enjoyed sharing as well egomong is an impact publisher bringing organizations closer to the communities they want to serve and the leaders they wish to influence we combine insight context and experience to deliver asymmetric outcomes and are driven by our goal to positively impact a billion human lives by 2030 if you'd like to collaborate with us then please visit our website egomong.com or send me an email at sartaj@egomong.com And if you liked this episode then please do share it with others and consider rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to your podcasts.